I am excited, again, about our, our topic. We're in Philippians, and we're looking at the life of Paul. We're seeing a life transformed by the gospel, by the, the living Christ. And so we've looked so far at Paul's prayer life. We saw his specific apostolic prayer. How cool to be able to sit in and, and, and see what the apostle prays for when he prays for God's people, right? So encouraging. Not like that country song. And then we, we got to see last night his perspective, his priorities. Because he had the priority of Christ as his treasure, and because the advance of the gospel was his master passion, he could have the perspective that he had. Here's a guy who was in chains, chapter 1, verse 13. He's in chains, and yet he sees it as an opportunity for the gospel to, to advance. He could have been upset, he could have complained and whined like we often do, but instead, what's he say? I praise God that I'm chained to guards. What an opportunity. I have a captive audience. So it doesn't matter. Chains? What about critics? He says earlier in chapter 1, verse 18, there are a lot of guys preaching the gospel out there, and they're doing it in such a way that they're trying to rub salt in my wounds. But what does it matter as long as they're preaching Christ? So he doesn't care about his circumstances. He doesn't care about his reputation. Because his master passion is the person of Christ and the advance of the gospel, will, which will lift up Christ's name. That's all he cares about. Today we see at the end of verse 18, I, I wish we, I had put that in there as well, and we'll, we'll see it here in a minute. At the end of 18, his rejoicing continues. He continues to rejoice because not only will chains and critics serve to advance the gospel in our sovereign God's hands, but his crisis as a whole will be an opportunity for Christ to be magnified and lifted up, whether in his life or in his death. So that's what preachers do. Chains, critics, and crisis. And in all of it, God he sees as sovereign and can take all things, even bad things, into his sovereign hand and make them into servants for God's glory and for our good. Amen? You believe that God is great? That he is sovereign? That he is good? You see, at this point in the letter, Paul begins to speak now about his future. Let's, let's read the passage again. We can't go wrong in reading God's Word again. We're going to look at his confidence and certainty today. Listen to his certainty, his confidence about his future, even though there is some sense of uncertainty about his immediate circumstances. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. Verse 19, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and I hope that in no way to be put ashamed. I will not in any way be ashamed or disappointed, but I will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether in life or in death. And then the famous motto, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in this body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and your joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. 
So, again, let's pray. Father, would you help us today to see Paul's confidence? He has this confidence because he has you as his everything. We pray that we would have Paul's priorities so that we can have his perspective on life, so that we can have his joy, his confidence, his hope, and his certainty of life in the face of death. Lord, may we be joyous Christians because we have built our lives on the foundation of Christ. May he be the blazing sun at the center of our universe, not some speck off in the corner. And in this way, we will be invincible in your hands. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, at this point in the letter, he begins to speak about the future. He's looking ahead. He's taking the long view, and he, he begins to make confident predictions about what the future holds. Verse 18, I will rejoice. He's making a choice that he will continue to rejoice even as he looks ahead to the future. Verse 19, I know, there's a sense of confidence, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. This all, these circumstances, they're going to turn out for my deliverance. And what does he mean by deliverance? We'll think about that. Verse 20, I will not be ashamed. I know that I will not be ashamed, but that God is going to do great things in my body. Christ will, verse 20, he will be magnified in my life or my death. My life is the theater for his glory. He's confident of these things. So now he writes this letter, and he does not have 100% certainty about what the near future holds. The future was uncertain for him in many ways, and not in other ways. He's in prison. And it's possible that he could be finally marked out as a traitor by Rome, and the sentence could come down, and he could be executed. His first trial before Caesar apparently had gone in his favor. The final verdict, however, was not yet in place. And so where would the winds of Roman justice blow? He doesn't know exactly. Although by the end he seems to believe, you know, I think it is that God is going to have me stick around and to minister to you. But there's not 100% certainty. He, he knows something, though, with certainty. He knows some things, and we can too. He's confident in a deliverance on some level in the future. He's confident that Christ desires to magnify himself in Paul's suffering in his life. And you can know that God wants to do that in your life. He is confident that he will not be disappointed by Christ. He will not be put to shame as he stands for Christ in chains and against critics and in the midst of predicaments. And so Paul makes these predictions about his responses. He's making predictions about his responses based on his confidence in the Lord. There are four words, I think, that summarize for us his responses to the future. There are four words that summarize his confidence about the future. I think of the word joy. It keeps coming up. The word confidence undergirds this whole passage. Hope. He's full of a certain hope and life in the face of death. He has confidence in life beyond this. Quite a future he has. Quite a future we have. We would be invincible in a sense. Like Paul, the annoying prisoner. Remember we talked about that last night? How annoying was this guy? We're going to kill you. Huh, sweet. Die is gain. We're going to let you live. For me to live is Christ. We're going to persecute you. Oh, I can know the fellowship of his suffering. Oh, we're going to chain you to guards. Sweet, a captive audience. Oh, can't stand this guy. He seems invincible as he stands in Christ and finds his identity in Christ and the gospel. And so 
it has been said that there were two men and they looked out from their prison bars and one saw the mud and the other saw the stars, right? One saw the mud and the other saw the stars. And so here's Paul. He's looking out literally from his prison bars in Rome and he doesn't see the mud. He clearly sees the stars. And he sees those four stars, the star of joy, the star of confidence, the star of hope, and the star of life. And again, the ground of his confidence, joy, hope, and life, ground for all that confidence, the reason for those stars is the person of God and the promises of God. He knew these stars were in place because of who his God was and what he knew his God could do. I like how Corey Tenboom puts it. She said, even though we don't know what the future holds, we know the one who holds the future. Isn't that good? Sweet little old lady, she got it. We don't know what the future holds, but we know the one who holds the future. And that's why he sees those stars. That's why he looks up and not into the mud. He knows that the future holds for him more opportunity for joy, confidence, hope, and life. Let's look at those stars. The first star, again, is joy. It, it's a major theme of the book. It undergirds the book. It, it's like a, a beautiful golden thread that runs throughout the whole book. Remember that for him, he has joy because his treasure is Christ. And his master passion is the gospel advancing. Again, the question is, is that true of us? So that he can see in his chains, here's an opportunity to preach to soldiers. And we know by the end of chapter 4, there are believers in Caesar's household because he was in chains and preaching the gospel to Roman guards. He can look at the criticism about him. He can look at people's false motives as they preach the gospel and say, I don't care what they think of me. They're preaching the gospel and that's all that matters. I have joy. And so here he is in the middle of crisis. In verse 18b, he says, I will continue to rejoice. And we said that, that happiness is, that's tied to your circumstances, Right? That's tied to people and things and events. It comes and goes. It, your happiness comes and goes. It's up and down. But your joy is, is tied to who God is and the promises you have in Him. It's tied to who God is and your inheritance in Christ. You can have joy no matter what you're going through. There are a lot of realities that are rock solid for us that our joy can float out of. Think about some of the things that this book tells us. We've been justified by grace through faith. We're already justified if we put our faith in Christ. Our sins are forgiven. Your life is written in the Lamb's book of life. We know that as well. We're children of God. We're heaven bound. We have an inheritance. We have a resurrection hope. We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit right now, which is a guarantee of our future inheritance. These are things that his epistles teach us in the book of Revelation. These unseen realities are fixed and they are the source of our joy. How often do you meditate on those realities? How often do you preach the gospel to your own heart? We have a saying at Tri-State, preach the gospel to your heart all the time. Pray for your heart and preach the gospel to your heart all the time. The gospel isn't just how we get into the faith. It's now the bread and butter for the Christian life too. It's the engine that motivates the Christian life. Preach these truths to your heart, these certainties, and you will have joy no matter what you're going through. And so four chapters in this book, joy, the, the related word rejoicing or gladness, those words show up 19 times. It's a major theme for him. But the second star 
as he looks up out of his prison, is the star of confidence. And this really is the emphasis today. The reason for his joy is his confidence. There's an intermingling. There's an overlap. This is the reason for his joy. It's because of where his confidence lies. Verse 19. Listen to the confidence here. The certainty. I know that this, these adverse circumstances, my imprisonment, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Hear the certainty there? I know. I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. What is he so confident in? In deliverance. But, okay, what is this deliverance? There is debate among scholars. Am I 100% sure on my interpretation here? I feel fairly confident. But there is some debate. What does this deliverance refer to? Is it deliverance from prison in the near future? Some commentators hold that. Or could it be the deliverance in the ultimate sense of eternal salvation, final salvation, vindication, being ushered finally into the presence of Christ? It seems likely that Paul, I think, is intentionally leaving some ambiguity here. I think there's a reason why we're not exactly sure which deliverance. I, I'm not opposed to saying that it's both. Certainly both are theologically true. God can deliver him from prison. God will certainly deliver him in the ultimate sense, even if he's executed. In light of the mention of his imprisonment in the preceding verses, verses 12 through 14, it's, it's potentially accurate that he thought there was some sense in which he'd be delivered. But then again, I think he doesn't seem really certain. He seems to be pulled between the two. And then there seems to be this real emphasis on the eternal focus. He knows with certainty that he'll depart and be with Christ and that death means gain. So there's a tension between this temporal deliverance and this eternal salvation. In fact, it's evident throughout the passage. He says things like, whether by life or by death, I'm hard-pressed between the two. Here's the one thing that I know for sure, though. Paul wants the Philippians to know that even if his expected deliverance from prison fails to materialize, if he is executed under the decree of Caesar, he will still be saved. He will be delivered to eternal life by God. Paul was confident in his ultimate deliverance. Whatever Caesar decided to do with him, the same confidence is expressed by Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, he says in chapter 4, verse 18, the Lord, Timothy, the Lord, he will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. He will deliver me safely into his kingdom. So Paul was entirely confident of ultimate vindication of deliverance. This Philippians 1 passage is a way of stating Romans chapter 8, verse 28. I know that God will work all things together for my good. All things will work out towards my being made more like Christ and finally being in His presence. You know, though, there are times that God doesn't deliver us from our immediate circumstances. It's not promised in this life. Even if a smiling preacher gets up and says, God wants you to have your best life now, that doesn't mean it's true. That's over-realized eschatology. Your best life is yet to come. It's not yet. This isn't the best. The best is yet to come in that final deliverance. When we're finally delivered from this sin-ridden world, this body, 
his struggles, and we're finally in his presence. But sometimes God says to people, I'm not going to deliver you right now. We pray for people. Sometimes we pray that people, that they won't suffer anymore, that God will heal them, take the trials away, heal the cancer, take away the persecution. Sometimes God does. But there are lots of times that God says deliverance is going to await. It's going to await you in the future. So even if that person, and I, and I have prayed for someone, a 19-year-old kid that I had discipled, he was diagnosed with leukemia, Nick Zimmerman. We prayed that the Lord would allow him to live. He had just been married. Lord, would you just grant him healing? Could you do a miracle? And the Lord said no. But ultimately, Nick was delivered. I remember laying in bed with Nick. He looked like a skeleton, riddled with cancer. As I read him about these certainties, he just kept saying, I'm so thankful. So thankful. I'm so thankful. It's true. It's true. He was ready to face Christ, and he would a couple days later. And I got to preach his funeral and share the gospel with a large portion of that community. God had other things in mind, and Nick was delivered. New resurrection body. Nothing a good resurrection can't fix. At the same time, he was not confident in his self-contained spiritual resources. This confidence in God's deliverance it had nothing to do with his strength or resources or ingenuity. His confidence in deliverance rested upon, notice this, the prayers of the Philippians. He says, yes, verse 18, and I will continue to rejoice for I know that through your prayers, through your prayers, and God's provision of the Spirit of Christ what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. God delivers, but God uses means, even the means of prayer. God will accomplish his purposes. No one will thwart them. But isn't it a crazy thought to think that God works through the means of your prayers to accomplish his internal purposes? Paul had no doubt that prayer was powerful and effective. He believed in the power of prayer. He knew that if he would be delivered, if he would be perhaps vindicated before Caesar, if he would be delivered from prison, if he'd be delivered and persevere and be ushered into the kingdom of God, it was ultimately because of God's grace in his life. And so often God's grace appears in your life as the result of prayer, people's prayers. He could not do this in his own resources. He is confident that God will see him through by means of their prayers and through the fresh supply of the Holy Spirit to empower him for the ministry he had ahead of him. Even the strength to die well. What is the ground of his confidence? Prayer. Do we put any stock in prayer? It's prayer that takes hold of the resources of God. It's prayer that takes hold of infinite power and resources. Are you prayerless? I have to admit to you, this is one of my greatest struggles in Christ. I struggle to pray with the discipline of prayer. I'm so self-sufficient. I'm too confident in myself. I want to be busy for the Lord. And then you realize, I haven't been abiding today. I've been doing this in my own strength, like a branch cut off from the vine. What am I doing? I need to be on my knees in prayer. I'm going to go do this for the Lord. How can I not do this in prayer? I was reminded of this just minutes ago as I'm in the back. 
getting ready to preach, and a dear brother comes and prays for God's anointing on this message. This is the key. This is where the power lies, not in my ability, not in our delivery, but in God's power. I love Corinthians where Paul says, you know, some of us have come and we've, we've planted the seed of the gospel. Some of us come along and we water, but it's God who brings the harvest. God brings the change. How do you take hold of God's power to change lives? You pray. And then God's glorified. I love a little bit of William Mack. You know, we read William MacDonald sometimes. He's so simple and yet concise and profound. He said this about verse 19, about their prayers. I want you to marvel here at verse 19, at the importance which Paul puts on the prayers of a feeble band of believers in Philippi. He sees them as sufficiently powerful to thwart the purposes and the mighty power of Rome. It's true. Christians can influence the destiny of nations and change the course of history through prayer. How amazing will it be to be in eternity and find out it was through your prayers that someone came to know the Lord? Ultimately, it was God's work, or through the means of prayers, God worked, or that circumstances were changed in a life. What a kind thing to do for someone to tell them, praying for you. We take that for granted. Do you see that prayer is the means by which God works and delivers? Paul was not going to depend on his dwindling resources. He was going to depend on the generous resources of God, ministered through the Holy Spirit. Through prayer and the help of the Holy Spirit, God can open prison doors. He can empower his people to boldly speak the gospel in front of audiences of judges and kings and Caesars. And he can preserve his people, bringing them safely into the kingdom. It's the work of the Spirit. It's the result of prayer so often. How does the Spirit of God come and empower him and give him courage to, to stand up and live for Christ in prison and to die well? The Spirit does so many things for us. He, he seals us in his ministry. He indwells us. He fills us and empowers us. He intercedes on our behalf. He, he prays for us in Romans 8. He delivers us ultimately safely home into God's glory. In this life, the Spirit fills us. He empowers us for daily ministry and activities. We forget that. If you're not abiding, John 15, if you're not staying plugged in and praying and relying on His resources, you're cutting off opportunity for the Spirit to fill you and empower you for the things you need to do for God. A beautiful example of this empowering ministry and work of the Spirit in the life of the early church is in Acts. There's so many occasions, but in Acts chapter 4, verse 31, the apostles have just been released by the Sanhedrin, released, and it says, and they were all filled with the Spirit, and they continued, therefore, to speak the word of God with boldness. That boldness was not from themselves, it was the empowering help of the Holy Spirit. And why do we do so much in our own strength? Why are we not praying? Why are we not abiding? We are, why are we not surrendering so that he can fill us and empower us? to do the things we need to do for him. And so they knew, he knew that they prayed for him, verse 15, and this fueled his towering confidence in this difficult situation. No hint of self-confidence or self-sufficiency, just confidence in the power of the Spirit and the power of prayer. Do you want to be inspired to pray? Read this guy named Leonard Ravenhill. I think what he says is right. He said, 
Let the fires go out in the boiler room of the church, and the place will still look smart and clean, but it will be cold. The prayer room is the boiler room of a church's spiritual life. The boiler room of your Christian life is the prayer room. That's the power source. I love the story of Charles Spurgeon, a man who led thousands to Christ. Three young men from the United States went to visit his church. They arrived early and they knocked on the door and an old man opened the door, let them in, wanted to get into the tour. They were thrilled. But he began by saying, can I show you our boiler room? It was a hot July day and they thought, um, I guess. He led them downstairs and as he opened the door, he said, behold our boiler room. And there were hundreds of believers in the basement on their knees in prayer for the services that were about to take place. That was the key. Prayer. Taking hold of God's resources. That's where lives are changed. It's the boiler room of your Christian life, of this school and of our churches. Leonard Ravenhill also said this, and I think he's right again. At the judgment seat of Christ at the Bema, likely the most embarrassing thing the believer will face will be the smallness of his praying. I'm afraid that's true of me right now. Lord, help me to be a man of prayer. It's a good prayer right there. Teach us to pray, Lord. So he had this confidence in his deliverance through the Spirit and through the prayers of others. But he had confidence that he would have a life that would be a theater for God's glory. He says in verse 20 that his confidence is that Christ will be honored in his life or in his death. Verse 20, we see Paul's confidence in deliverance matched by his confidence that Christ would be honored in his body. Listen, it's my eager expectation and my hope that I will not be disappointed or at all ashamed, but that with full courage, the Spirit will supply me. Now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether in my life or in my death. You hear the certainty there. It's my eager expectation and my hope. In modern times, we have neutered the word hope. We have decaffeinated the word hope. We have diffused it. We've infused it with a sense of uncertainty. We, we cross fingers and say, I hope. In our modern sense, we often mean, I hope it doesn't rain. But there's a 50% chance, so there's not a lot of certainty. Or for me as a Hawkeye fan, I say, I hope we'll win today. But with that offense, it's pretty uncertain. In the New Testament, for Paul, hope is not a hoping kind of hope. It's a knowing kind of hope. Biblical hope is not a hoping kind of hope. It's a knowing kind of hope. There's a certainty. It's grounded in the promises of God and the person of God. Paul's confident hope was coupled with this eager longing, this expectation, this intense expectation of what was sure to happen. I will not be put to shame, though. Whatever happens to me, I will not be put to shame because I know that Christ is doing something in me. He'll use my life. And so there's... One gentleman named Ellicott said, my body will be the theater in which Christ's glory is displayed. And that was Paul. Through the Philippians' prayers and this, this fresh supply of the Holy Spirit, God would give him courage to live well and even to die well. That was his great ambition. I want 
Christ to be glorified in my body? Do we think like that? What do we do with our bodies? What do we do with our hands and our eyes and our feet, our shoulders? Do we magnify Christ with it? I can't help but think of Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, brothers, I urge you in light of God's mercies to offer your bodies, your whole person, as a living sacrifice. And this will be your spiritual act of worship, offering your whole person, your life. That's worship. One gentleman said, how is Christ magnified in our bodies? How could he be magnified in our body this week? He could be magnified in our lips as we bear happy testimony of him to others. He could be magnified in our hands as they are employed for his happy service. He could be magnified in our feet as they so happily go and run his errands or as they bring good news. They could be magnified. Christ could be magnified in our knees, happily bent in prayer for others, for his kingdom. Magnified by shoulders, happy to bear another's burden. These are practical things we can do. We can magnify Christ in our bodies. One writer said, but he can be magnified in our bodies in death too. Bodies worn out for his service, pierced by spears, lions, bullets, stones, or burned at stakes. Even our death can be an opportunity for him to be glorified. For Paul, he counts it an honor to be spent in every way for Christ. For Christ is his greatest treasure, the blazing sun at the center of his universe. This becomes apparent, very clear, that Christ is his great treasure in the famous motto of verse 21. Love this. I love this verse. Verse 21. This should be our aspiration, our motto. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. That reveals his great treasure. It reveals, again, his confidence in the face of death. It reveals his confidence even in the face of death. Who could say something like that? That's radical stuff in our day and age. In a culture that lives for this world, to say, for me to live is actually Christ, and to die is not loss, it's gain. Who could say such things? Now, in, in Spain, there is that Christopher Columbus monument. He died in 1506. This monument stands commemorating the great discoverer. Now, perhaps the most interesting thing about this monument, this memorial, is that there is a lion at the base of it, and it's destroying the banner. One of, it's destroying specifically one of the words in a Latin phrase that had been part of Spain's motto for centuries. Before Christopher Columbus made his voyages and found new lands, the Spaniards, they thought that they had reached the outer limits of the earth. And so their motto was, ne plus ultra. No more beyond. There's nothing beyond here. We've discovered it all. We've reached the ends. The word being torn by the lion, though, is the word ne or no, making it read plus ultra, more beyond. Columbus had proven that there was indeed more beyond. With new worlds just over the horizon, the belief that there was nothing more was now replaced by the confident claim that there was indeed more beyond. You know, I bring this up because this is the real predicament that we live in as Christians in this culture. We're surrounded by people who think that there is no more beyond. 
this. Their motto is not to live as Christ, to die as gain. It's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Have you ever seen Dead Poet Society, the scene where Robin Williams' character takes his boys aside and he teaches them the Latin phrase, carpe diem, seize the day, boys, because this is all there is. You live, and tomorrow you're pushing up daisies. End of the story. Live for now. There's no more beyond. Boy, I'm so thankful that that's not true. Paul knew Christ who conquered death. I am the resurrection and life. He who believes in me, even if he dies, yet shall he live. He knew the one who went through death and burst out the other side. He met him personally. His life was transformed. He knew that there was a lion, the lion of Judah, who burst through death and who tore away the word no. There is more beyond because of Christ. There's a living hope, Peter says, based on a living Savior. Paul clearly had this hope and this eager expectation. He was a man living between two worlds, wasn't he? A man living between two worlds. A man who, in this passage, is living on earth, being fruitful for Christ, wanting to serve others sacrificially, and yet longing for heaven. A man between two worlds. Do we live like that? Do we live like life is an opportunity for fruitful service for Christ? To know Him better? To be empowered by Him? To have fellowship with Him? To know Him? And yet at the same time, death is not our ultimate fear because we know that death means gain. I get Christ. Woody Allen said, I'm not afraid of dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. I can agree with that. A dear professor that I loved and revered, I was told that in his last days, he said, you know what, I'm actually a little afraid of dying. I've never died before. There is that fear in the moment, the process, but there's not ultimate fear. There's more beyond, because Christ has taken us there. He says, for me to live is Christ." He means for me to live is to be empowered by Christ. He, he says in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ is now the one who lives in me. For me to live is Christ, to be empowered by Him. For me to live is to glorify Christ. He clearly is living to have Christ magnified in His body. To live is Christ. There's this guy named Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf. I wish we'd named one of our sons that, Julie. Von Zinzendorf. He was a German missionary. He said this, I have but one enthusiasm. It is he, and only he, to live as Christ. I have one enthusiasm, and ultimately it's Christ. I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings and the power of his resurrection in my daily life. There is an interesting correspondence between what life is lived for, though, and how you perceive death. Here's a test for you. Fill in the blank. Philippians 1.21 becomes a valuable test for our lives. For me to live is what? What do you live for? What's your enthusiasm? What's your master passion? What do you spend your resources on, your time, your energy, your money? Where do you find your identity? For me to live is, and to die is, Fill in the blank. How about 
our world, for me to live is money. Well, then, to die is to leave it all behind. That's loss. For me to live is fame. Then, to die is to be forgotten. Loss. To me to live is power. To die is to lose it. Loss. No, we must have Paul's treasure in this life, Christ, if we're going to experience his gain at death. One writer said, the clarity and the sanity of Paul's confident saying here, to live as Christ, die as gain, that shows the shallow tragedy that so many people in Paul's day and in our day live in. Among the ruins of ancient Carthage, there's this inscription. It's fascinating. It's an inscription from a, a Roman soldier, and this is what it says. To laugh, to hunt, to bathe, to game, that is life. For me to live is hunt, to take the bath, to party. Nothing's really changed, though. That's not just ancient Carthage. That's our day. For me, it, life is to fortificate, to accumulate, to dine well, to golf, to play, to hunt, to garden, to travel, to drink, to watch TV, to ski, to shop, to play, to hunt, to, to have a family. Queen Elizabeth I, on her dying day, on her dying day, she said with great fear and anxiety to her lady-in-waiting, she said, Oh my, and she said God's name in vain. It's over. Oh no, it's over. It's come to an end. It's over. It's over. But when the believer comes to the end, we can say, my life was Christ. To die is gain. My dad said those words to me on his deathbed. He was riddled with a brain tumor and lung cancer, and he, he had me write John 11.25 above his bed. And the resurrection life, and he would say, Mike, read me that passage again. Mike, would you read me that passage again? My dad, he died, but he died unexpectedly after my uncle. My uncle was uh, the voice of the Razorbacks. He was also the play-by-play -play announcer for the Hawks, Iowa Hawkeyes, back in the 70s, Paul Eel. He was going to a celebrity golf tournament, and uh, he was expecting to go play and come home. He didn't return home. We don't know what happened. He passed out. Cruise control was at 77, crossed the lane, head on into another lady named Bobby, and they both died. He had just been in, in Iowa with us weeks before to say goodbye to my dad because my dad was dying of cancer. We didn't expect that he'd go first. But he was a believer, and before, before he went to that golf tournament, his wife Vicky said, I just don't feel good about you going on this. I don't know why. He said, just remember, to die is gain. To die is gain. And he said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So whatever happens, I'll see you again. Those were prophetic words. And they're true. And we continue to whisper those words to each other as a family. To live as Christ, to die is gain. And so we can live radical lives for Christ. We can have great confidence. We can live as, as people hemmed in by these two glorious choices. I can continue to live and be fruitful to the Lord, abide in Him, and He can produce His life in me, or I go home. And He uses that language of departing. I can depart and be with Christ, which is a beautiful metaphor. It was used of, of sailors as they would pull up anchor and set, set off for home shores, or of soldiers as they would pull their tent stakes and leave an occupied territory to go home. And one day we too will pull up our stakes and we'll wrap up our tent, this earthly body, and we'll pull up anchor and we'll simply go home. And who doesn't want to go home? You can live a bold life, Christian. 
with great confidence. Is this your motto? To live as Christ, to die as gain. Father, we're thankful that we can see Paul's priorities, his passion, his treasure, and that's why he has this perspective on life. Lord, help us to be more like Paul. Help us to be like your son. Help us to be people who count Christ as our treasure and our greatest treasure at death. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.